Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. Welcome again. Glad to have you with us here today as we get ready to enter into part number two of this great series we just started last week with Warren Litzman about Jesus and Paul. It is terrific. Let's not wait another moment. Here's Warren. What I can do is lay out for you the things that the Spirit is saying to me as a messenger and allow the Holy Spirit that deals with you to decipher and translate and interpret and put it into your life and your working as best as possible. I have nothing you have to believe. I preach nothing that puts you out of fellowship with me if you don't agree with it. We are a message. The message must be clear and strong, accepted or rejected. It's a message. Strangely, in our religion today, our Bible is, is greatly become a frustrating thing. The modernists have fantasized most everything they could in the Scriptures. There's no literality to it anymore. The inerrancy of the Bible is a word that most believers can't even spell, let alone what it believes. We're in a frustrating place with the Scriptures. New Bibles are coming out every day. I was in a Christian bookstore this past week, and they had a shelf that was about 50 foot long full of Bibles. I mean, there was a Bible there for everybody from an apostle to a theologian to a three-year-old baby. I mean, everybody had their own Bible. They had them for carpenters. They had them for bricklayers. They had them for insurance. So they had a Bible for everybody, mothers, daughters, sons, fathers. I was astounded. So the Bible has become more or less an idolatrous thing where everybody worships it, honors it, has one around, laying it around. Some even teach out of it. But the message that's in it is not easily found. If you have not seen what it is that's in the plan of God, the plan of God, how do we ever get to know what's in the plan of God? Because everybody sees it differently. Everybody does. The Jehovah Witnesses have a, an astute plan of God. The Mormons have a plan of God. The Baptists have a plan of God. Pentecostals have a plan of God. Who doesn't have one? How do you come to find out what is in the plan of God? Well, what I want to do during this meeting here is talk to you about how the gospel came about. How, not, not how it came about in uh, putting it into the scriptures, not how it was finally decided which scripture would be in which place but how the gospel came about to those that have been born again. Now, that's a special group of people. Those that have been born again have been rebirthed by God. They're not Baptist, Methodist. There are no Baptists that are Christians. I've told you that before, but there are a lot of Christians that are Baptists. So you need to get that fixed right in your mind, you see. The born again are a special group of people. They are a special group of people in this Bible. They are a group of people that have very little said about them as people because all that is talked about concerning them is in a message. It's a message. It's a message about those that God has rebirthed. Most of the people in the Bible are not rebirthed. There was no rebirthing 
until the day of Pentecost when we were baptized into Christ. That's the first time the incorruptible seed took place in a human being. So you got most of your Bible dealing with people that were never born again. Most of them never had Christ in them. Now they say a lot of wonderful things, but they never say them from the viewpoint of who you are. See? They never say them from the viewpoint of what's happened to you. Uh, sad to say, we have been overwhelmed by those who don't know anything about the birthing, and we talk like they talk and act like they act. But the facts are, we are different. We're radically different. A Christian is one in whom Christ lives. He got there by, by, by a birthing. That human being has been rebirthed. You understand about that? That's a special message in the New Testament. That's a message that you have to rightly divide in the New Testament because there's still a lot of information in the New Testament about the correcting of people. So let me put that before you. The difference between a birthing and people who are disciplined or corrected. A person that is being corrected is that you're taking the material you have and trying to fix it right. A person that is born again is a person that you're taking nothing that they are. Absolutely nothing. You're depending on a whole new person. A whole new creature. So obviously there ought to be a different message for them, don't you think? Don't you think there ought to be a different message for those that are in Christ and the Scriptures and those that are not? A different message for those that are under the law and those that are under grace? Well, sad to say, we've all grown up in religion where that was commingled, mixed together. So that when somebody like uh, me comes along, uh, I upset people. Because you're sure you got it all settled. See? You're sure you got it all settled. And if anybody comes and insinuates something that disrupts your settlement, that guy's wrong. He's out of, he's out of bounds. He's... He's uh, in error. But you see, that's my responsibility before God, to preach what is the true gospel. Well, everybody would say that, wouldn't they? So how do we really know what is the true gospel? Well, you have to think about these two characters in the Scripture, Jesus of Nazareth, who was human, born of a woman, and Saul of Tarsus, who was human, and he was born of a woman. But you have to get them properly separated. One way I do that is this little idea that Jesus of Nazareth came from heaven to straighten out an earthly people. He was a heavenly being who came to the earth to straighten out the earth. The apostle Paul was an earthly being who was called by God to take a people off this earth to heaven. Now, do you see a distinction between those two callings? And yet, the Apostle Paul could do nothing without Christ. He could have no message without Christ and his death on the cross. He would know nothing except the wisdom the Holy Spirit gives him concerning Jesus Christ. You see, I'm a, I'm a real uh, stickler, let's say, for that thought. I don't believe the Holy Spirit teaches us or tells us anything 
that doesn't have to do with Jesus Christ. I get that from John because he said that the Holy Spirit would not speak of himself. He'd speak only of me, Jesus says. So I believe that. I take that literally, you see, because I've heard so many things said by people who said the Holy Spirit told them that, that I doubted, that I hated to blame that on Christ. So now I only accept what the Holy Spirit says if you're talking about Jesus, because that's life. He's what God is all about to us, Jesus. If you've seen Christ, he says you've seen the Father. So it is the Apostle Paul who actually fulfills Jesus Christ on this earth. He makes Jesus Christ complete. It's like this. When God created human beings, he created them in the image and likeness of Christ. Every human being is created in the likeness of Christ. Don't care how mean, ungodly they are. If they came out of a mother's womb, they're created in the image and likeness of Christ. But there's one thing Paul tells us that nobody else in the Scripture mentioned, and that is that that person created in the image and likeness of Christ coming out of a mother's womb is incomplete. Now, that's not talking like they said to me one time. They said, Litzman's not all there. That's not what I'm talking about. We were incompleted human beings when we were born. What was lacking with us? What was lacking with us was that part of the gospel which God had attributed to the Apostle Paul that had to do with Christ. That part of the gospel. What is that part of the gospel that's most important? It's Ephesians 1 and 4, the oldest verse of Scripture in the Bible. We'll spend a lot of time there later. According as he has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the first thing in the Bible. That's the, as far as I know, that's the oldest thing spoken about in the Scriptures. That was way before time started. Chosen in Christ. When is that going to take place? It doesn't take place in the first 4,300 years of the Scriptures. So you've got nothing there about what God's plan is for human beings. You understand that? A lot of good words. Look at David's Psalms, how precious they are. But not a word there that has to do with the person that's been rebirthed. Not the same gospel at all. Same God, but not the same gospel. And so God created human beings, and they're incomplete in their creation. When will they ever be completed? Paul tells us, Colossians 2.10 says, we're completed in Christ. There you are. Those are two most important words in this gospel. I want you to stare at them for a little while. In Christ. In Christ. That's the heart of the other gospel. Now, the gospel of correction is by Christ. He'll do this for you if you believe. But that's the gospel of correction. Why, why do I say that? Because it's under the law. What's the law about it? You have to believe. A birth person doesn't have to believe their birth. Either are or they aren't. Of course, some of you have a problem believing you're alive, but in Christ you are alive. Why? That's not something you did. That's something God did. And so whether you know it or not or feel it or not, we have to attribute it to God and take it as from the Lord because that's what being born again is all about. 
Why is it, getting back to our main subject now, that, the, that Jesus of Nazareth was never completely fulfilled in his mission? I could give you a lot of instances in the scripture that shows his unfulfillment in his own heart, in his own life, his dealings with Peter, his dealings with his natural family, his dealings with Israel, his dealings with all the people he helped. His signs, wonders, and miracles did not convey a deep relationship between him and they. Unfulfilled. But he dies on the cross because that's God's sacrificial offering to get what it is he wants. How is it he was never fulfilled by Israel or by his disciples? Comes to his own and his own received him not. How could he be fulfilled as a life giver from something that was based on human beings' doings, on the law? This is very tedious, and I want you to see it if you can. Jesus, under instructions from the Father, had come from the throne as a babe in Bethlehem to restore Israel. Why was God so taken up to Israel? Because his promises are true, and he had promised Israel so many things, and he needed to complete them, mainly the restoral of the kingdom. He wanted to do that. How could Jesus be fulfilled, full of life and vibrancy? He could speak the word and the storm had lay down at his feet. He could speak the word and the dead had come forth. How he, so full of vibrant life and heavenly power, could exist on an earth? Of course, it was love. Of course, he was full of grace. But he was never fulfilled. You know why he wasn't fulfilled? Because Judaism couldn't fulfill him. Judaism. Look at the scripture in Luke 24. In Luke 24 and verse 44, just, just mark that one verse. And he said unto them, These are the words which I speak unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms concerning me. What does this say? This says that his message had to do with all the things written in the law and the prophets. Jesus was not obligated to a message of grace, yet he was full of grace. John was able to say in his gospel that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, but he was limited. He was unfulfilled in giving that grace because he was obligated by God to the law of the prophets and to the Psalms, to the Old Testament. Why do I make a point of that? Because there's no life there. 
There's no life there because there's no sun there. There are promises, there are prophecies. He's foretold, but he's not there. He's not in the people. He's not even with the people except by prophecy. Unfulfilled. What is it that makes a difference then? When God raised up the Apostle Paul, grace was the theme. It was the thing that I see bursting out of Jesus at times. Look, look at where grace is in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He's not to have anything to do with the tax collectors, but he goes home and eats dinner with Zacchaeus. That's contrary, you see. He's not to forgive sins because first they must repent and be baptized according to the law of the day. But he says two or three times to the man born of the four, to the woman taken in adultery, thy sins be forgiven thee. Grace was just bursting out of him. But that wasn't his message. That wasn't the real him. He could say it once in a while. He took a dying thief and saved him on the cross, but that still wasn't his message. His message was under the law. He had come to fulfill it. He said, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That's important, you see, to our understanding. Because Paul made the great difference in Jesus of Nazareth as far as grace was concerned. Let's take a look first at Paul. Saul of Tarsus, meanest man on earth, destroyer of Christians, tears up church meetings, walks into meetings like this with Roman guards behind him and grabs believers by the nap of the neck, puts them before magistrates and puts them in jail, concentration camps, or even some of them were killed. Meanest man on earth. He had taken it upon himself to do that, to get the recognition of the Sanhedrin. Why in the world would God want a man like this? He's got an apostle Peter almost straightened out. He's got the, the bad ones out of the camp. Judas has hung himself. He's got all these good apostles sitting around doing nothing. Uh, nine of them, we don't know whatever they did. He could have called any of them. But why did he call Saul of Tarsus? Well, it has to do with this thing that's in Christ. John said it, grace and truth came by Christ. He chose the meanest man on earth, and he put Christ in him. He put Christ in him. So now, by the Apostle Paul, Christ is in the most beautiful, magnificent manifestation of himself he could ever have. He never had it with Israel. He never had it with Peter before the day of Pentecost. He never had it with all those he saved and healed and delivered. But he got the meanest man on earth and manifested Christ in him. And now we've got Jesus in his most beautiful form, grace, salvation, life. That's where the message started. 
That's the message of old that was picked up at that time because we finally have Christ now in his most beautiful form. He's on earth. He's in a new body. And it's a perfect body. It's a body that's been redeemed and cleansed. But more than that, it's a rebirth body by his Father. So Jesus is now fulfilled in the Apostle Paul. Why couldn't Jesus be fulfilled as Jesus of Nazareth? Because his enemy was religion. He couldn't be fulfilled by preaching the Judaistic message. Luke 24, 44. That couldn't fulfill him. That was God's plan. He was in dedication to God, but that couldn't fulfill him that was full of mercy and grace. And I'm going to tell you something. He's not fulfilled today by religion. He's not fulfilled by castle temples, by idolatrous worship. He's not fulfilled today by buildings our programs, our doctrines. You know what his fulfillment is today? You. Why? Because grace could have found no greater place to dwell than in you. Are you going to spend the rest of your life worrying about you? Are you going to be worrying about every little slip and sin and failure and shortcoming you have? Or could you have the attention, the intention of getting a hold of this message that says you were saved by grace and you're kept saved by grace? Grace is Jesus. Grace is not a Thumble full of God's love. Grace is a person. Grace is Christ in you. Grace is Christ operating through you. Grace is Christ in you if He never operates through you. Why? Came by birthing. I came into this world birthed by a German, and if I never look or act like a German, I'm still one in the flesh. When I was born again, I was born again God's child. If I never look like it, act like it, or feel like it, or you think like it, I was birthed to be that. And only my father can take away that birthing, and he's not an abortionist. What do you want to do with me? He knew I wouldn't be perfect in myself, but he knew if he put somebody perfect in me, I'd be acceptable to him, and that's what he wanted. He couldn't get that out of Israel. God never got acceptance out of Israel. Sadly, half of the nation of Israel may be destroyed in the tribulation period, getting that thing weaned down to where they accept the Messiah. But look at the mercy and grace he gave to you and I. He put Christ in us. 
He made us to have a new life. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, Christ liveth in me. That's the testimony of this man that God revealed this message to. He put Jesus in us. Why? Every one of us are manifestations of God's grace, of God's Son. To whom? To God. The message of correction is interested in how we manifest ourselves to the world. The message of grace is how we are manifested to the Father who birthed us. See? Big difference there. My mission is not to straighten out the world. We'll get to that in a later thing here. My mission is to be a manifestation of Christ to my Father. That was grace. That's why grace was so important. That's why God didn't look at me and say, if you be nice, I'll give you Jesus. No, when I said, Lord, I'm a sinner bound for hell, save me, he said, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do something for me. I'm going to put my son in you, and from that moment on, I'm not going to depend on you anymore. I'm going to get what I want. You say, how could he do that? Calvary, it is finished. That's what was finished. God's right to have his family. It's finished. So you can knock it, assail it, spit on it, trample on it, do whatever you want, but you're not going to get rid of God's plan. He birthed individuals who were incomplete by putting Christ in them so that Christ would be their acceptance to him. You say, what about all our garbage, all our sins, all our shortcomings? <clears throat> when you die, that's a good thing for you. If you wait till the resurrection morning, that's another good thing because you get a new body then where all that stuff is. You understand that? That's why we have a resurrection morning. I'll get a body and a soul to go with my spirit. Where does Paul fit in all of this? He comes along with a different message. His message now is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's his key. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the message. Look at the difference in the messages. Let's take the message of Jesus of Nazareth and compare it with the message of the Apostle Paul. Depending on Luke 24 and 44, we see that Jesus taught in the confines of Judaism. Jesus taught in the confines of Judaism. One of the last words he gave to his apostles were that I want you to go teaching the things I have taught you. Remember reading that? From where? Out of Moses' law. That's Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus taught, Jesus of Nazareth taught a gospel before the resurrection. Why? Because before the resurrection there was no semblance of true life. The apostle Paul taught 
a message from an entirely different position because he taught after the resurrection. He could teach a new life. New life. What is it that mankind didn't know before Christ was raised from the dead? They didn't know what a new life was. Modernism, erroneous Christianity, if there is such, teaches there's no changed life. And did you know most of them don't believe in a resurrection? There's been a lot of talk about religious doctrine in the last year or so. Time magazine has had at least four or five issues dedicated to some Christian doctrine. This last issue or a couple issues ago was on hell. So it's, I don't know why they've been intensified in this direction. But the statistics are that over 55% of Christian preachers do not believe in the resurrection. Now somebody comes to me and they say, why doesn't every church teach this in Christ's message? I've got an answer. I know theoretically why they don't. Most of them are not, may not be good believers or true believers or most preachers have their own agenda so they're going to preach what they understand. But I know why they don't preach it. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the body, you can't preach life. You can preach about a life. You can preach about what Jesus did. You can preach his miracles, signs, and wonders, but you can't preach life without resurrection. And the message that Paul delivered to us is a message that's based on resurrection. You know that. You know that from our past studies. You know that Paul never mentions anything about Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh. He only mentions Christ in the flesh in his death, burial, and resurrection. He never mentions a miracle, not a sermon, not anything about Jesus of Nazareth. Only his death, burial, and resurrection. Why? Christianity is a message of life. And you've got to have a death before you can have life. That's one of the final things Jesus said seven days before he died. Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. That's the deepest insight I know into God. In God is the idea that if Satan takes existing life and maneuvers it, I'm going to take death and bring life. That's the opposite for Satan. God brings life out of death. The devil says, I'll destroy. God says, good, I'll bring life out of it. <laughs> devil says, I'll kill. God says, good, that's necessary for life. You see, life comes out of death. He dies on the cross. That part is finished. We now have a gospel based on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. But the life comes out of the resurrection. Jesus teaches that I must keep you doing something in order to be right with God. Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost, the glorious day when, when the outpouring came and the church was born and Christ was first placed in believers. Now the Holy Spirit is not Christ. So why did the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost? He's the one who plants the seed. It isn't his seed. Holy Spirit is the one that's in charge of the birthing. He takes the Father's seed and puts it in you. We'll get into that some other time. But he's not the seed. The seed is Christ, the Word. The Father is God. 
the Holy Spirit's the conveyor of it. And he came on the day of Pentecost fulfilling Christ's promise in John 14 and 20 where Jesus said, On that day, the day of Pentecost, you'll know that I'm in you and you're in me. He didn't say the Holy Spirit be in you and I'd be in you. He was in them. He did come. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other thing. That's soulish. That's not spirit. But Christ was placed in our spirit on that day. Every person to be born after that would have Christ placed in their spirit. The Holy Spirit would still reside in the soul where he teaches and trains and brings forth his ministries. But the life was in the Son. In the Son. So the Apostle Paul taught resurrection while Jesus was still confined to the gospel of Judaism. That means then that Jesus had to look to the cross. The Apostle Paul looked from the cross. I'm wanting to get uncommingled the gospel in your mind. I'm wanting you to see the difference between Jesus and Paul. That is, Jesus of Nazareth and Paul. Because the same Christ that was in Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ that's in Paul. But I want to see the difference between those two human individuals that God used on this earth. Jesus had to look to the cross. In all the failure he saw, in all the shortcomings that took place, he knew in his heart. that when I die, there'll be a change, there'll be a difference, there's hope. The Apostle Paul came from the cross. Jesus of Nazareth taught the imminency of the kingdom. Now I'm giving you the difference between Jesus and Paul here. Jesus taught the kingdom was coming. The kingdom would come about. Matthew, Mark, and Luke gave the constitution for the kingdom. John veered away from it and talked about other things. That's why we separate John's gospel from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus taught that the kingdom is coming. What did he say when he called his, his disciples? He said, go forth and preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not the heaven of heavens. That's that they were going to have heaven on earth. Well, what is heaven on earth? The way it was before Adam sinned. So go, go, go preach it. We're going to have heaven on earth like it was before Adam sinned. So heal the sick and cast out devils and raise the dead. Do you notice not one word in there about a changed life? Why? He accepted Israel already. Their only trouble was is in sin needed to repent. And that's why the do message was so prominent in the Gospels. Do this and do that. That's why Jesus was constantly saying do this and do that because they were yet under the law. But he was preaching the kingdom. The apostle Paul never taught the kingdom. He taught the church that getting off this earth was the big thing. He taught a rapture. See? Now, for you scriptorians, if you separated all of the scripture of prophecy that had to do with the end time, Paul's message on the rapture would be the only thing left. If you separated it, if you separated all of the scriptures of prophecy which have to do with Israel, the only work left for the end time would be the rapture of the church. 
just all the rest of the scripture separated. That's four-fifths of your Bible. But four-fifths of the Bible doesn't belong to the born again. Thank God it's God's word. We get good and help out of it. But it does not have a message for the born again. It doesn't even have a prophecy for the born again. It doesn't say anywhere in the Old Testament we're going to be born again. It doesn't say anywhere in the Old Testament we're going to have Christ in us. And, of course, nobody had that. So if you took all prophecy, which is four-fifths of the Bible as prophecy belonging to Israel, if you separated that from what belongs to the church and to the Gentiles, the only thing you'd have left is a rapture for the end time. And no prophecy. Not one prophecy for the born again. But I'm meddling there. Just take it or leave it. Why do I believe that? I believe that's the only way you're going to come to understand grace. God's grace. Now, I've always made this statement that four-fifths of the Bible has to do with prophecy in Israel, and only one-fifth of it belongs to the born again. And uh, we have one man in our fellowship in Florida who, who was an engineer. He worked with uh, mechanical calculators, tabulators, and this sort of thing. And he'd heard me say that a number of times. And finally, he said, one day I was thinking, and I just decided I'd put that to the test and see it was so. So he took his tabulators and he went word by word and line by line through the scriptures to see whether or not I was right. And of course, I don't know whether I was right or not. I was saying what somebody else said. It sounded good and it, it's a proven fact that only Paul has the message that belongs to the end time for the born again. All the rest of it belongs to those that are either in Israel or not born again. So he said, I came up with this fact he said, you were wrong. He said, there's only 10% of the Bible that belongs to the born again. Okay, well, we've got to stop here. We're out of time for this week. Warren Litzman teaching us Jesus and Paul. What a great series this is. We'll really be looking forward to next week. And we thank you for listening. Don't forget to go to our website, christ-life.org. Read all about us and go to the bookstore and find some of these wonderful materials that Warren left us. Our thanks to Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into the archives each week to bring you these wonderful teachings. Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes. And our thanks to our wonderful, hardworking producer, Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ life.